Sunday morning studying the book of Revelation and, uh, and then on Sunday nights while we turn there, just to let you know that on Sunday evenings we do go through the Bible Genesis to Revelation currently in the Minor Prophets. We will begin the book of Haggai this evening and uh, Haggai is known as the alarm clock uh, prophet of the Old Testament and his message is uh, very important, as important today as ever and you're invited to come out this evening and learn the book of Haggai. We'll pick things up in Revelation chapter 5 verse 8. Now when he, that is Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, such as were in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that as we live in this world that we are able to look at it in the context of eternity, to look at it in the context of your throne. And as you see this invasion on the part of Russia into uh, the Ukraine, as you see every single person that is involved, as you see the response of the West, everything that is happening, you see it with a clarity that none of us possess. And this is uh, this expression of pride and arrogance, of entitlement uh, that is going on, and and the uh, just the naked aggression that is here. We pray, even as it is an affront to us, we know it's an affront to you, and we pray that you would deal with this righteously and that you would prevail in whatever it is that is <clears throat> happening here. We pray for the leader of, uh, of Russia. We pray for the leader in the Ukraine, the leaders of the world, that you would anoint them for this season, give them wisdom for stepping up and uh, bringing a halt to what it is that's happening. We pray, Lord, for innocent people that are just trying to get by, that are caught in all of this. And we pray that you would protect innocent life. We pray for the body of Christ that is represented in both these countries. They love you and doing your work and caught in all of this. We pray that you would bless them and you would protect them. And we pray, Lord, that you would give them strength, you would give them wisdom, and give them great influence for you and for your kingdom in the midst of all of this. We lift it up to you, Lord, 
knowing that you are able uh, to glorify yourself even in this and we pray that you would in prevailing in every aspect of it and we ask it in Jesus name amen now let me just pray one moment for our Bible study Lord we ask that you would help us to hear your voice through your word today that you would use our time in your word in this passage to give us a greater understanding of you what you've done for us and thus a greater appreciation and thus a greater spirit of worship Lord and uh, awe related to you and so we pray for this work of your spirit in Jesus name Amen please be seated chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation are the single greatest uh, insight that we have into the heavenly scene contained in all of the scriptures and it is a heavenly scene that uh, every one of us as Christians are going to find ourselves uh, in the middle of one day a new song is sung to Jesus in this context in verses uh, 8 through 10 and the context of this new song that is sung to him you might remember is that a very strong angel arose in that heavenly scene and he cried out who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seal and when the seals and when no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth responded to the angels cry uh, John the Apostle John assuming that this would mean that the world would continue in its present condition under the dominion and the authority of the devil he began to sob convulsively until the angel informed him that the situation was not hopeless and uh, directed his gaze to Jesus who then becomes uh, more prominent in that heavenly scene Jesus then came forth he took the scroll out of the right hand uh, of God the Father who sat upon the throne and at that moment in time <clears throat> as a result of verse 7 in this chapter all of heaven explodes in worship it just explodes in this new song of worship and praise directed toward Jesus himself we're told <clears throat> Here, that the song is specifically that it is a new song that is sung to him and so it's a song that is especially for this particular situation and uh, this occasion those who sing the song we're told in verse 8 are the four living creatures these are the angelic beings of uh, of, of some sort and also the 24 elders there are many Christians who believe that the 24 elders are another class of angels I strongly hold the view that they represent the church um, in heaven for uh, a lot of reasons and some of which we don't have time to get into today but some of which we may get into when we get into uh, chapter uh, 11 the physical their, their physical response to response to Jesus taking hold of the scroll there in verse 8 is that both the living creatures and the elders they fall down and worship before Jesus each of them is we're told has a harp and so this is where the idea comes that we're going to spend all of eternity in heaven uh, playing harps and uh, uh, so 
I wouldn't mind learning an instrument, and I will probably need to go to heaven in order to learn an instrument. I have no beat. I have no uh, anything. I'm a Scot through and through, but I can't even blame that. They can do bagpipes and stuff. But when we think about this harp, don't think about these massive harps that you see associated with orchestras or something like that. The, it was probably something like a lyre in the, in the uh, ancient world, kind of a handheld uh, harp. And the reason that the harps are, are there and the harps are now used in all of this is to, evidently to provide musical accompaniment to the song that is sung here in verses 9 and 10. We're also told that each of them holds a golden bowl that is filled with incense, something that is burning and something that is fragrant, uh, and, <clears throat> and that, uh, that this incense in this golden bowl represents the prayers of the saints. So we think to ourselves, what prayer of the saints all down through uh, human history uh, uh, would fit best with this scene? Uh, something like, uh, Lord, please heal my cat. Nothing wrong with praying for healing for your cat. Um, cats need all the prayer they can get <laughs> candidly. Uh, you, if you buy a dog, you'll find you have hardly any cause to pray for them at all because they're a noble being and a virtuous, selfless uh, animal. But no, the Lord cares about our cats. The Bible says that we're to cast all of our cares on Him because He cares for us. Everything that is important to us is important uh, to Him. But in terms of a prayer that's just right for this situation, how about this as a prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Being the prayer that fills, constitutes the incense and that fills uh, the, the coming forth from the golden bowls. Yes, and the reason that that prayer is so appropriate is that is the prayer that Jesus is about to answer as he begins to break the seven seals in uh, chapter uh, 6. It is a, a beautiful statement about prayer here in this scene and how God views uh, prayer. So both the fragrance of the incense uh, and the fact that it burns in uh, golden bowls as opposed to uh, an iron skillet or a hibachi grill uh, speaks to how God views prayers that are directed to Him, including, including this prayer. Our prayers to Him are fragrant. When we offer up uh, our prayers like this one, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is a fragrance to him to hear our faith, to hear our, our confidence uh, in, in him and, and our trust. It blesses him. Our prayers are obviously invaluable as they're uh, pictured here, more precious than gold. Only a golden vessel is worthy of holding uh, those uh, prayers and all the way down through human history of course this prayer has been prayed by saints in the most difficult of circumstances in their own personal lives circumstances uh, within the world and here is the reminder that not one single time is the prayer that we offer thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven never is that prayer misplaced 
Never does it go unlistened to, and it will never go unanswered. You notice the song specifically in verses 9 and 10. Jesus is praised in verse 9 for the fact that he is uniquely qualified. He is uniquely worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. And he is uniquely qualified to do so by virtue of his uh, death. And so he is praised for having been slain. But of course the fact that he stands in that scene very much alive speaks to the fact that he is worthy on the basis of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He is praised in verse 9, and this is the centerpiece of the praise. He is praised as the Redeemer of mankind, the Redeemer of sinners by His blood, by His sacrifice. If you're new to these things or new to the Bible, when it talks about the blood of Jesus Christ, in the Bible, blood represents life. And the fact that He gave His life in order for us to be forgiven and to be saved. So he's praised as the redeemer of sinners by his blood, by his sacrifice. And this, uh, his role as a, a redeemer, uh, his redemption of us is the single great theme uh, of this song of praise. The word, <clears throat> the word redeemed means to be released upon payment of a ransom. That's what it means. So today, uh, redemption or redeemed, these are not words that we use in our culture anymore, uh, unless they're uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, spoken of in terms of redeeming a coupon, or uh, we used to redeem uh, blue chip stamps and those green ones too. Uh, they didn't give those out as freely. So this is a, a word that is lost in our culture in terms of having any impact upon us at all. But it speaks of being released upon the payment of a ransom. When the Apostle John uses the word redeemed here, it would have immediately produced a, a picture, a scene in the minds of everyone that was listening to him. It was a common word uh, in that, in that uh, culture. In the Roman Empire, slavery was legal. And in fact, it's estimated that there were over six million slaves that constituted a portion of the population of the Roman Empire. And so you picture in your mind, as the word redemption does in the ancient world, the image of slaves being brought out by slave traders. They're brought out to an open marketplace, placed, and there they are standing on a raised platform surrounded by a large crowd of men seeking to purchase a slave. And so the auction uh, begins and, uh, <clears throat> and the slaves are sold one after the other to whoever has the purchase price for the slaves. And as a slave is sold, the ownership of the slave passes from its previous owner then to the new owner. And this is precisely what God has done for us in Christ. We were once slaves to sin, slaves to this world, uh, slaves to the devil, slaves to our own flesh. We had no more help of, of freeing ourselves from our bondage to that uh, slave condition than any slave in the ancient world ever had of securing their own 
uh, freedom from slavery standing uh, there in that uh, auction. But God stepped in in, in, that, in that auction block of our lives. He paid the price for our freedom in the giving of our, His Son and thus securing our freedom, securing our liberation. And so a slave could be freed in the ancient world with the payment of money, but no amount of money can set a sinner free. In human history, only the price that Jesus Christ has paid through his life is able to set a sinner free. As Jesus declared concerning himself, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So maybe this morning, some of us might remember for just a moment our former bondage, our former slavery to the flesh and to the world and to the sin and, and to uh, the devil. And then to stop and remember the liberation that Jesus brought into our life in that moment in time and a liberation that he continued to just lavish upon us, walking us into greater and greater freedom from all of these things. And it makes us realize that when we stand in that scene, and one day we sing this song to him as our Redeemer, it will not be any kind of a hard thing to sing to him. And especially no longer through a glass darkly, but then face to face. As the old hymn puts it, face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face what will it be when with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Now notice too that he is praised for having redeemed us out of every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. He is the Savior of the entire world, not just the Jew, but also the, the Gentile. And He is praised not only for what He has saved us out of, but what He has saved us into. You notice in verse 10, He has made us kings and priests to our God. In making us kings, He has made us a part of His kingdom. In making us priests, He has bestowed upon us as Christians the twofold, uh, uh, two-purpose uh, purpose of the, the priests in the Old Testament. Number one, to represent God before the world through our lives, and then to represent the world before God in our intercession for our loved ones and for the world. And then he declared that we shall reign on the earth. And so we shall, at the thousand-year reign of Christ, following Jesus' second coming, known as the kingdom age as well, we will rule and reign with him. And more on that when we get into chapter 20. And then notice in verses 11 and 12, the declaration of an angelic host. I mean, immediately on the heels of the first song, as, as, the, as that first song is being sung and, and concluding, a second worship song is sung to Jesus, including not only the living creatures, and not only the 24 elders, but now a hundred million plus angels join in with a song of their own. And if you want to do the math, that's the number that you're going to come up with. 
A hundred million uh, and plus beyond that. In other words, it's going to be a group of people singing to the Lord in number without calculation. Now, I don't know the last time you've been in a worship service where you heard 100 million people singing praise and worship to God with loud voices as we're told here, everyone fully engaged in spirit and in truth, the same worship song to God. Well, I've never heard that yet either. But get ready because it's in your future as it's recorded here. And then in verse 12, Jesus is praised as the song goes up, not for, as, it, as we can read it here and, and, and uh, say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive, as if He is lacking in these things. And these must be something that He receives from some uh, other source. That's not what's being communicated here. He's being pra- praised because He already possesses these things. And so he is worthy as the Lamb uh, who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. He, contain, he possesses all power, all dunamis. All power belongs to him. He possesses all riches. In other words, there's not a promise that he makes to a single one of us that he is incapable of fulfilling. He possesses all wisdom. He is the embodiment of wisdom. He is the, uh, uh, the source of perfect wisdom. As Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, in whom, speaking of Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He possesses all strength. He, 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 he and his purposes can never be defeated. He possesses all honor, and while all honor is not shown to him today, one day it will be. Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He possesses all honor and then all glory. The glory that He is due uniquely as God the Son and the Son of God and all blessings. He alone possesses all that can truly be called a blessing in life. And then He lavishes it upon us as His saints. The declaration of every saint and, and every angel is then uh, given to us in verses 13 and 14. And here, both God the Father and Jesus are the recipients. Blessing and honor and glory and power to Him who sits on the throne, speaking of God the Father in this scene, and to the Lamb forever and ever. Both of them are recipients of the same praise, certainly speaks of the equality within the Godhead, uh, the, the equality between the Father and the Son. And then with that, in verse 14, the four living creatures say, Amen, which means that's the truth, or so be it. And the 24 elders then uh, fall down and they worshiped Him who lives forever and ever.
As we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper here this morning, I want us to notice a repeated description of Jesus in this uh, chapter as he is referenced there in that uh, heavenly scene. First in verse 6, he is described as a lamb as though it had been slain. In verse 9, for you were slain. In verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And clearly as we allow the Old Testament imagery to interpret the imagery of the book of of Revelation, we have Jesus being portrayed here in the light of the Old Testament sin offering. And I don't think that anyone can ever fully appreciate Calvary or Jesus' death upon the cross apart from an understanding of the Old Testament sin offering. And no one can fully understand or appreciate chapter 5 of the book of Revelation without understanding it uh, as well. The sin offering in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. The sequence of events associated with the sin offering are given to us in Leviticus chapter 4. An individual who would be guilty of sin would bring a lamb without blemish to the priest. As the lamb was there, the sinner would then put his hand on the head of that innocent lamb. It was a picture of substitution. The transference of the sin of the guilty to an innocent sacrifice. And as the sinner looked at that animal, they knew it was going to die in their place. That animal, innocent animal, was going to die for their sin. And then the lamb was slain before the Lord. The priest would cut an artery in the sheep's neck in order to produce a quick death. And as a result, this warm flow of blood would come forth from the sheep's uh, neck. It would begin to weaken. Its legs would begin to buckle. And then it would collapse in death. And no one could watch that sequence of events and not be powerfully instructed regarding and humbled by the awfulness of their sin. That my sin brought this death to this innocent party. And then the blood of the Lamb was then applied to the horns of the altar by hand in in order to ceremonially cleanse it. The remaining blood was caught in a bowl, poured out at the base of the altar. The fat of the Lamb was then removed from the Lamb and then placed upon the altar. It was burned before the Lord for a sweet aroma to the Lord. In other words, what was happening there was not merely a mindless physical ritual. It represented the heart desire and the prayer of a child of God for the forgiveness of their sin. And that was the sin offering. And all of this was a type, a shadow, a picture of the Messiah to come. A type and a picture of Jesus who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Bible says of Jesus that He and He alone is the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And He Himself, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation, that means the satisfying payment 
uh, for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. And so when you see Jesus hanging on the cross of Calvary in your mind's eye, don't see one set of hands upon him or five sets of hands uh, upon him as that lamb. See the hands of every single person who has ever lived or will ever uh, live uh, in human history upon him. He bore the sins of us all. It's interesting to realize that at the time of the giving of this law concerning the sin offering until the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus into human history was 1,500 years. And so for 1,500 years, God used this sin offering to drive home the, co- the concepts of transference and substitution related to the cleansing of sin. Every time a sin offering was offered, there was the recognition that the forgiveness of my sins has occurred at the expense of the death of an innocent, substitution, and that my forgiveness and my salvation has occurred because the Lord has made a way for my sin to be transferred to another, transference. And thus for 1,500 years, the Lord had driven home the point to the Jews and to the whole world, I am forgiven on the basis of substitution and transference. I am forgiven solely on the basis of uh, substitution and transference. It drove it home over and over and over again. So that when Jesus comes on the scene, as the Messiah of the Jews and the Savior of the world. And then he declares that the cleansing of their sin would occur on the basis of substitution. Him dying in our place. And on the basis of transference through faith. They shouldn't have acted as if it was some kind of a foreign concept. They had been doing it for 1,500 years. God had been preparing them for 1,500 years. Isaiah prophesied of it in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. I'll read it to you. Yet it pleased the Lord, God the Father, to bruise him, Jesus, and he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, and he that is the Father shall see his, Jesus' seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, And he shall divide the portion with the strong, the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. John the Baptist absolutely understood it. And and he declared to his disciples to cease following him and now following Jesus. And he does so with the words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What was John saying of Jesus? Jesus is the one who is going to die for our sins in our place, and the sin of the whole world is going to be transferred to him. 
And the entire ceremony was intended to produce this profound sense of horror, this stunned sense of something seems to have gone terribly wrong here, something seems terribly backwards here, and it was intended to do that. As they stood before the tabernacle, here is this living young lamb standing there, breathing, innocent, all in one piece. And yet before their very eyes, in just a matter of moments, it is slain, it is bled, it is gutted, it is cut in pieces until it no longer resembles a lamb anymore. And all because of their sin. And yet they got to continue to live. And all of it is but the faintest shadow of Calvary. All of it was a preparation for Calvary, where we see Jesus hanging upon the cross. In the morning of His crucifixion, when the day began, you see Him there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's breathing. He's healthy. He's whole. He's innocent. But in a matter of few hours, He's hanging on a Roman cross. And His face is so savage that He's unrecognizable for who He is. And His entire body is so brutalized that it's just one great open bleeding wound. And in the words of the Holy Spirit, again by Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his, speaking of Jesus, his visage, his face was marred more than any man, and his form, that is his body, more than the sons of men. And when you look at him, and you realize that he is not merely a man upon the cross, That would be horrible enough. But that He is the Son of God and God the Son. Then we ask ourselves, how is it that He dies and I get to live? And what both the sin offering of the Old Testament and the crucifixion were and are intended to communicate to mankind is first of all, They were meant to horrify. Both were meant to horrify in a way that would get people's attention. And then having gotten our attention, they were meant to teach us something, and that something is the seriousness of sin in the eyes of God. And like a great blinking neon light in in this moment in time in terms of of the highway of human history, Jesus' death upon the cross communicates the seriousness of sin. And people reject it today. They talk about the religion of the Bible as that bloody religion. But I ask you, are there any reminders of the seriousness of sin? of sin left in our culture or left in our nation and are we better off because of it? Now God knows that in the fallenness of this world and the strength of our own broken, fallen, dark nature 
that we need a reminder of the seriousness of sin that is greater and stronger than the indoctrination of the world around us that tells us that it means nothing to view our own sin as harmless and offensive to everyone else, to ourselves, and even to God. And in these sacrifices, there is also the reminder of the holiness of God, that God cannot be casually approached by sinners, that our sin cannot be ignored, but it it must be addressed, and it must be addressed God's way. And faith in Jesus Christ is that way. And these sacrifices were intended also to produce an awe within us related to our salvation. And the cross of Jesus Christ is intended as well to provide hope to mankind and to provide hope to the greatest of sinners. Because we recognize of the sacrifice of Jesus, as you see him there nailed on that cross in order to provide us with the forgiveness of our sins. There is something there by the Holy Spirit, whether a person is saved or unsaved. We know deep, deep down inside of us that no sin, no lifetime of sin could ever be greater than that sacrifice. And when we see Jesus hanging on that cross in order to provide that forgiveness of our sins, we realize that no one got away with anything. That this is not a cheap grace that God is offering us. It's not just an empty kind of sayings or rituals about uh, forgiveness. This is an indescribably substantial addressing of our sin and of our guilty conscience. And when we see Jesus hanging on that cross for our sins, no one can say that my sin is greater than that sacrifice. Not even the worst sinner in the world can look at the cross of Calvary and believe that. There is something in human history about that cross, that sacrifice, that scene, that Savior that overwhelms even the guiltiest conscience and gives us hope for forgiveness and for peace. And in order to cleanse our sin, God had to provide us with something that we would recognize as being infinitely greater than the greatness of our sins. And that something is the salvation that is found in the blood of Christ, in His death and His burial and His resurrection. And so we turn our focus now to the Lord's Supper and the symbols of His body and of His blood shed in order for us to be forgiven and to enjoy the life that we enjoy as Christians today. And so it's a time to praise Him as our Redeemer, to praise God for providing us with redemption, and then to praise Him for the unspeakable price that was paid in order for people like you and me to be forgiven, to be saved, and to enjoy a relationship with God Almighty Himself. The men are going to come forward in just a moment and they will pass out
the cups, the, 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 the bread and the cup will all, and juice will all be in one cup. And so they say, pass it out, hold on to that, and then we'll pray together, and then we'll partake of the elements together. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, it's important that you not partake of the Lord's Supper until you become a Christian. And I certainly want the first time that you partake of the Lord's Supper to be as a Christian and not as just some kind of a meaningless ritual where the realities, the spiritual realities that are symbolized by His body and by His blood have become a reality in you. But you might sit here this morning and you might say, I'm ready to do that right now. And all that's required is to just to look to God this morning and say, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner. And I believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son into the world to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sin. So I repent of my sin and I turn your way and I put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, as heaven's Savior, and I choose now to become one of his disciples. And when you do that, you'll be born again by the Holy Spirit, the greatest miracle a person can ever experience. And then, of course, enjoy the Lord's Supper with us. So if the worship team will come out, if the men will come forward, let's worship our Redeemer and the Father who sent him to us.